Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today I'm talking to Nilan, VP Growth at TransferWise. Nilan and I met five years ago and back then he was the first person I knew who truly understood the confluence of technology, product and marketing. Just like Gusto, TransferWise is hugely customer obsessed, always thinking about the virtuous circle of high NPS scores driving the business. TransferWise was founded in 2010 and Nilan joined as an advisor two years after foundation. Shortly after, he moved to a full-time leadership role, so he has seen almost the entire journey from the very beginning. Today, TransferWise is valued at $5 billion and the company has raised over $1 billion in capital. In this episode, Nilan will speak about product obsession, mission-driven marketing and amazing growth cultures. Nilan, you had huge success over the last couple of years building TransferWise, you know, now valued at $5 billion. But before we speak about TransferWise, where did you grow up? Hey, Timo. Uh, nice to connect on, uh, and nice to catch up again. Where did I grow up? I, I Honestly, no one's ever asked for my backstory before on a, on a podcast or an interview. So uh, you're going to hear it here first. So I'm from London, from Southeast London, which in the in the London tech scene, it's quite unusual. Uh, yeah. It's quite funny. I think at, at TransferWise, uh, we probably have 200 people in our London office. And I counted, we have a, f a half, I think, are from the UK, but only three are from London. <laughs> so oh, wow. okay. so it's, uh, it's a bit, bit of a rarity. Uh, so I was born and bred in South, Southeast London. I went to school in New Cross. So from a pretty... Uh, back then, and still is, uh, quite in a poor, uh, deprived area. The place I'm from is a place called Eltham, and it, it, it's, uh, it was put on the map because someone was murdered there. Uh, oh, wow. Someone called uh, Stephen Lawrence. And uh, this, this murder, I think it's before your time in the UK, it, it became, it was a pretty big deal. Uh, Stephen Lawrence was, was black. Uh, he was murdered by some, some white guys, and the police never investigated his murder seriously. And oh. it led to what was called the McPherson inquiry. And then, uh, which, which led to the, the police kind of admitting they had institutional racism in the UK. Wow. So, so that was like the, the UK's uh, first BLM moment. Uh, and that was, uh, I was very formative to me when I was, uh, when I was growing up in the UK, I was a pretty, pretty ardent campaigner on all those kinds of issues. Uh, when I, when I went to university, I studied, I studied the maths at uni and, uh, yeah, some of that, some of that has never left me, uh, kind of, uh but that, that's my heritage. Wow. Okay. And sorry, we're jumping slightly, but <laughs> you know, given the BLM discussion, do you feel like the world has moved on the way it should have moved on or it's a really how good do you feel about question, this? Yeah. So, I can bring it back to work as well in this context. So like the BLM uh, discussion has, uh, has many, actually many levels to it. 
and I can't really opine on some of the big fundamental issues, right? But the ones I can opine on are more around, more around like the kind of intractable problems of uh, around poverty and people getting stuck in a in a trap and then not not having many ways out of it, and then that that cycle continuing. And so when I, I so I do think that that's perpetuated, uh, obviously in the US and in the UK to a certain extent as well. I think there's more we can do about it, but these are these are super super hard intractable problems that are going to take uh, such a long time to work through. Yeah, for sure. And just going back to your childhood, like, did were your parents in business? How did you? When was the first time you thought about entrepreneurship and business? That's a really good question. So I'm uh, I'm the child of immigrants. Uh, my my parents are from from Sri Lanka. Have you ever been there, Timo? No, I haven't, but I keep on hearing the food is amazing. Oh yeah, the food's amazing and the and the beaches are amazing. Uh, I totally mm. recommend it. And having parents from Sri Lanka means I, I got to go there every three years, which was which is very cool when I was growing up. And this thing happens when you're the child of immigrants that, you know, parents generally work really hard to get to another country to give their to give their kids a chance at some some other kind of life. And I look at my mum's brothers and uh all of them that came over from Sri Lanka in that generation, and they're all crazy overachievers. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. So my mom's little brother became COO of uh, British Telecom. Wow. <laughs> Her other little brother uh, founded the London School of Commerce and, uh, and runs wow. that and is doing really well now um, with campuses around the world. So there was there's always this kind of like, I mean, look at the second generation, like th their kids are all, all crazy. So, but the first generation kind of feel this thing that they need to do something because their parents did so much and like, left so much behind to come here to give them a, to give them a chance. So I, I definitely felt that a little bit and lo a, lot of, uh, a lot of maturing is in kind of learning how to manage that and harness that and not let that, not let that crazy drive drive you uh, mm. too much. I was lucky enough to have role models. That makes sense. And, and the challenge with role models when they're that close to your family is like, so what my, my young's, my dad, sorry, my mom's uh, younger brother, um, he did maths at uni. I did maths at uni. He worked <laughs> at Anderson Consulting. I worked at Anderson Consulting. So it, it took me a while to kind of figure my own path, uh, which, which kind of took me into startups. But uh, it did help me kind of just, just aspire in a slightly different direction. And how do you feel like math prepared you for startups? That's something I'm really passionate about. So, um, so my wife is, uh, is a maths teacher and, uh, we met at university, but we did maths together and she's passionate about like giving kids life skills with maths. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm just really nerdy. About maths. I think it's like, uh, it's like the only like really fundamental science that kind of gets you closer to understanding what the meaning of of the, of the world is like, like the things you learn there just feel so much uh, more real than uh, kind of what you discover through experimentation. At least it feels that way at first. And that was my passion uh, and still is. Um, what that does, so the, the things with these things is that it obviously gives you a bunch of tools and we can talk about the kind of tools that you learn when you learn maths. And over the last 20 years, I've as data science has gone from nothing to something, these tools are now being applied systemically in business. And we can talk a bit about that. But the other bit that's interesting with math, and this is probably a character flaw of mine I try to manage quite carefully, is it, it forces you to try to abstract away the detail into higher underlying principles 
that describe the system. And I, I catch myself, uh, so this, this is kind of useful, this kind of level of like trying to figure out what the underlying architecture is and what the real levers are and then focusing an organization on that. So all this stuff is useful for when you're narrating a strategy or trying to direct a company, but it means you lose sometimes the fidelity of the specificness of different situations. Mm-hmm. And it's super dangerous if you apply it to people. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah. Does that echo with you at all? Uh, you're a maths nerd as well. Do you, do you think about all the same? Yeah, I mean, you and I are both uh, members of Nerd Forum. <laughs> and um, I was a member of the Physics Society when I was kind of in high school. My wife and I are both relatively geeky. So yeah, it does massively resonate. And I think what I really underappreciated on my own journey is that until I was kind of 30, I thought it's all about analytics, numbers, the numbers never lie. And then in my 30s, I realized, nah, it's actually all about people and the numbers can tell a lot of different stories actually. And leadership is so much more rich and, and different. And I mean, I guess TransferWise today must have you know hundreds of employees. You said 200 in the London office. How many people do you actually manage today? And how are you finding this given your math background? Oh, wow. Okay, that's a good one. So we have 2,200 people totally. And across, uh, I look after marketing and product. And across both of those, we're about 400 people globally now. Wow. Um, the 2,200 are about 1,000 across Europe. And then 500 across APAC and about 500 across the Americas. Um, mm-hmm. Broadly how it breaks down. Uh, the question on the math break, the, uh, the math background and managing people, uh, let's, let's park that for a second. Before we get to the people topic, I like the way you describe that, you know, everything's analytical and uh, an analytical problem and can be solved analytically. And then there's this people side, which needs something else. So I actually remember having this conversation with, uh, I think it's probably Christo actually. And when you look at business problems, there's definitely... Let's call them, and you, you can think about Gusto, I'm sure, this way. There are parts of the business that are optimization problems. Mm-hmm. So you just need to, it's kind of clear what your objective function is, what you want to, what you want to maximize, mm-hmm. and then you just uh, figure out how to maximize it as quickly and most efficiently as possible. And, and really, you're just turning the handle on a process. And there, there are people that really enjoy doing that. And, and no, let's not generalize. Let's say there's part of the human brain that really enjoys that stuff because it's got certainty around it, right? It's mm-hmm. like you do X, you're going to get Y and you're kind of sure that's what the result's going to be. And then there's this other side, which is, I'm going to describe it as like non-analytical. And yeah, the, the people stuff's in there, but there's also like parts of building product where it's super ambiguous what you need to do. And it's very unclear and you, and you can't put it into a, an equation that's going to say do X, right? Um, and a lot of this is, you know, early on in the customer development life cycle of product development, when you're just, when you don't know you've got product market fit and you're trying to tweak what you're building to get it to work and going back and forth, back and forth with talking to customers, looking in their eyes and trying to figure out, have you actually solved anything and what are you solving? Mm-hmm. Those problems are the ones which are really valuable and really interesting. And uh, yeah, I think this part of the human psyche enjoys that that side as well. So that's my frame when I think about uh, analytical versus non-analytical. Yeah, and the people thing, you can find like uh, people stuff that you can kind of manage a bit analytically and then there's stuff which, which you just can't as well. And the same thing on business. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And if you had to compartmentalize, what percentage of time do you think does TransferWise spend on optimization versus, you know, solving other problems? It's a great one. So I have a neat way of uh, talking about this. Um, we optimize on building a business that will grow through word of mouth, right? Now, um, I'm not sure if if that was the outcome, uh, but that, that definitely felt like like one of the things that we said we were going to try to do. And the things I've learned, as we discussed about growing a business through word of mouth means it's got to have a high MPS, right? And, and basically what that boils down to is you get really high MPS when you build something that's much, much better than the alternative. Okay, so we got down to, we want to build a business that's doing something much, much better than the alternative. And for us, much, much better means much, much better on price, much, much better on speed, much, much better on ease of use. And we can quantify how much that is, like at least 10 times better on price. And we can see this analytically. When we're, when we're that much better, we get crazy growth. Now, the fun bit is uh, when you're building what I call a 10x better product, right? So we, we define the problems as we want to build a 10x better product than anything else. It means by definition, you're building something that doesn't exist. And if you're doing it right, like you don't know if it will ever exist <laughs> because no one's ever done it before and it's that hard. <laughs> and if you're not in that state of existential crisis, you're not trying hard enough. So our product team is incentivized to build things like that and approach the problem in that way. So if we're in the optimal optimization space, we're just not going to get the return on engineering. Now, there are definitely some, I'm kind of like a polarizing, right? Uh, there's obviously some parts of the business that focus on optimization and making things more efficient and turning the handle on that kind of stuff. But unless we've got the step changes in product and the step changes in products are only going to happen through real kind of innovation, creative breakthroughs, approaching the problem in a way no one else has done before unless you've got enough of those driving the step changes, you're not going to move the top line materially enough. And you're not going to make from a, that's from a shareholder perspective, from a customer perspective, you're only going to make a marginal difference to their life as opposed to a, a much, much bigger difference. And that's what, uh, so the magic is if you can try to get, create the culture that, that wants to do that, feels safe trying to do that, then you have the chance of building an, an incredible valuable business and a valuable product to your customer base yeah it's an amazing point and there's so much noise when you scale a company and so many problems emerging all the time how do you focus on the right signal that kind of tells you you're on track to build this oh jesus that's such a hard question <laughs> yeah. You know, for example, would you look at, I don't know, NPS score and you looked at detractor reasons and this month you said, oh, we lost 10 points because of X, Y, Z. And therefore we put five squats behind it so that we can kind of, you know, move uh, NPS score up. But again, that kind of grounds you in reality. There's a lot of gravity in the problem. This is good. I, uh, this is good because I haven't, I haven't got a, a good answer to that. So let's try to work it through together. Um, so I'm sure you're exactly the same as me when I, when I start to talk through this. So when I, I think about answering this question, one end of the scale, you've got execution stuff, stuff that you just need to execute on. And as, as you may know, there's always execution challenges somewhere. So you have, you have things there. And then you've got strategic stuff, which is like, you know, what should you be executing on? Is there stuff that 
is going to pay back in two to three years. How's, how's that looking? So you need some frame that takes that into account. And then finally, you've got the, uh, the bit underneath it, the business and the people. The mental model I'm beginning to use for that is how are you growing bandwidth or capacity to do stuff right mm-hmm. well. So we can step through these three things one at a time and love, love to get your, your thoughts as we go. So I guess like, what's my frame for figuring out, am I working on the, on the biggest execution uh, challenges? Uh, so I'm sure much like you guys will, our teams will have a plan and you can kind of see what, what things are going to have the biggest impact in the short to medium term. And it's quite easy to see mm-hmm. where you should focus that way. The longer term stuff's uh, more difficult. So I kind of refuse to, uh, <laughs> I refuse to have a strategy, meaning like I refuse to top down say, these are the three things that are the most important, uh, which means um, that we have min- many long-term bets in parallel being worked on. Right? Mm-hmm. So for banks, like we're, we're now 10, 12 banks now use Transwise and offer it to their customers. Well, um, That's one of the fastest growing parts of the business. Small to medium-sized business banking. So we have over 2 billion deposits. Small to medium-sized businesses starting to use us as their primary bank accounts. And that's, oh. and that's small to medium-sized businesses are growing twice as fast as, as consumers. And, um, and then we have platform partners like Xero, uh, who you go on the Xero platform and you do your accounting, you push one button and do all your payments with TransferWise. So we have a, in the strategic initiatives, we have a bunch of stuff that, if I look at it in the, what's the impact on this year's forecast and, and uh, it's minor, but when I look three to four years out on the valuation of the business or the volume, volume of the business, that's where, that's where the volume growth is going to come from. Neither way to take that into account. And then the final, the underlying bit, which is the bit I, I obsess about the most, the people bit, which is, uh, this is a, a longer, longer story. Um, so the mental model I've got for this is, so we're, uh, say, doubling in size every 12 to 18 months on all the business KPIs, like uh, volume, revenue, uh, profit. And if you're doubling every 12 months, you'll need to double the support teams, the transactional teams that scale with volume, right? as you know. And as you know, you, you sometimes can't scale the team as fast as the demand. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> very well aware of that yeah it's painful <laughs> and that delta between like where your customer demand is and where your ability to services i i call that delta the as those two lines diverge the the probability of you screwing up increases <laughs> <laughs> and uh you screw up is mild screw ups like the you know it takes a little longer to answer the telephone right or the verification takes three hours longer and uh, customer satisfaction drops and the growth rate drops. And it gets me to this big realization, the underlying growth rate, right, is really driven by the rate at which we hire and onboard people. And then my big constraint is, isn't the rate at which you, you can't just hire 100 engineers, right, in a year. You need to, if you hire 100 engineers, you need to have 30 tech leads already on board for, uh, for three years and maybe 20 heads of engineering and like 10 heads of engineering, like you need to have the support around them. So really the bottleneck is leadership. Right. Mm. And, and so across like this, so summarizing back what I said, so the rate at which we can execute better and execute on the strategy is really constrained by the rate at which we uh, create leadership bandwidth. 
And there's no silver bullet, as you know. You either develop it in-house as fast as you can, or you hire it and onboard it in. And like hiring and onboarding, I can I can do maybe two two people a quarter if I'm doing well, and maybe mm. one one to two. But it's very very slow, right? Versus what really is the need in the business, and that's what I I spend my time. So almost all my time is actually given is governed by where we aren't scaling fast enough. The, the leadership and people and the most highest leverage activity I can do isn't fixing the execution. It's in hiring and onboarding leaders into TransferWise and trying to, to fix the underlying issues that would enable us to do that faster. And obviously supporting in execution and strategy and that stuff, longer term and shorter term stuff. But really that's the, that's what I see as being the engine of the business. Makes, makes perfect sense. I mean, I think the first one you mentioned is, is pretty much one you can delegate quite easily. And, you know, people will have a feedback loop and they know if they hit the budget or not, and then they can optimize. And the strategic bets need capital allocation and talent allocation, more importantly. But then as long as you set the North Stars, you know, and you have great people behind them, you can probably execute relatively well over the course of a couple of years. And then I agree. I mean, the people challenge is really, really um, hard. So what have you learned over the last couple of years on that challenge? So it's probably similar to you, right? So when you look across the business, you can try to define this. You can look at each function. So you could have customer support in your business, say logistics, in mind payment operations or compliance operations. And you could have like, how much should they be growing at? Just put that as a number. And then how much are they actually growing? And then you have these support functions like HR. So if you're going to double the number of engineers, you need to increase recruitment and uh, maybe HR operations, et cetera. So these other functions. And then you'll also need more engineers to support all this work and to, and to do new stuff. So what I learned is you don't need to look at KPIs to tell you which bits of the business aren't scaling well. <laughs> like mm -hmm. you just look at yep. people's eyes. <laughs> you can yeah. see it because the, when you're growing, when you hit the sweet spot of finding product market fit and customers are recommending your product and it's growing, people just get under, overwhelmed and underwater so quickly. Right. Mm. And, uh, one learning is just staying on top of that. The second one is you have to move so fast. Like if I leave an issue for six months without fixing it, a people issue. So it's got so bad in that time period. So most businesses you can run with a weak lead for three months, six months. When you're growing fast, it'll completely screw you. So you have to move on these things really fast. And, and, and the mental model I use is because we're doubling every 12 to 18 months, everyone's role is getting twice as large in complexity or scope. And we support our people in kind of addressing that challenge. But if, they, if, they, if they're struggling, we should try and find people that can help them to come in and lead the team and support them. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, what we have learned is, is that you just constantly have to perform better and performance is foreshadowed by potential and potential comes largely down to growth mindset and your ability to learn at a rapid, rapid speed. And that you can kind of interview for and you can try to foster like a learning and development culture and you can, you know, give people time to think and learn and develop. But it's really, really hard, especially when the pressure is really high. And I think when people interview with us, they kind of anticipate that the growth rate is really high. But when you are in the system and you feel it for the first time, it's so different than anything you've seen before. So it tends to be very, very, very challenging and burdensome for people. 
So how, what have you learned in terms of where to hire people from, what to look for in interviews? You know, maybe you started looking at math skills and now you look at growth mindset and learning ability or talk me through that. Wow. <laughs> a few sets of questions. So firstly, that, that's very smart what you said on growth mindset. This is a really hard question, another <laughs> hard question. So where did I start off looking for? You're totally right that I, actually I do remember my, my framework for hiring people was um, people that are analytical, creative, and driven. And I would actually assess on these three criteria and ways to assess them through an interview. Yeah, and that's how I'd hire. And what did I learn from that is you actually don't need to be that analytical, really. <laughs> it wasn't. It really wasn't that important. <laughs> I mean, I used to ask the most uh, crazy questions in interviews. I don't know, it's just like, I think I was just proud of being maybe too smart. I don't think it was that. I don't think it was that helpful at all. Um, I probably over-indexed on that a little bit, probably badly. Um, and the driven point is still there. Yeah, that matters less. So the, the interesting thing for me now, Timo, is probably the same as you, is I only get to interview, if, if, uh, I get to interview people still, obviously, uh, but generally as a, a last round. And so a lot of the obvious, all the stuff that's obvious has been taken care of, like culture fit. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't make it past the team uh, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, unless they got through the culture fit test or, uh, and they can definitely do their job. Um, so I, <laughs> I wouldn't, I've done like, uh, probably like you for the last seven years at Transferwise, I've done three interviews a week. So I've done a lot, a lot of interviews and I'll retro a lot on interviews and I, I wouldn't say I've learned any, uh, any magic, meaning when I, there are people that I think aren't great, but we hire and they end up being amazing or people that we reject that go on to do great elsewhere. So I, I, it's like so hard in an you know, in the interview setting to get a good signal. Uh, but I'll share what I have learned and what, not what I've learned, what I interview for now, more for, more for your feedback. Um, Love that. I only, I only ask two questions in final rounds. I'm generally doing product, senior product interviews more than anything else. So one question I ask is where you're leaving your current job. And the second question I ask is to talk through an example of something they've shipped end to end. And if it's a leadership role, then I'll go on to have they, have they ever fired anyone and why and how they, how they kind of uh, safeguard the quality of execution. It's the first one that's the most, most interesting. So why have they left? So in my experience, people, even if you've headhunted someone for a role, they only take the interview because they, they think it's going to be better than where they are. And, mm. uh, I find it really insightful to figure out what they're, I describe it as what they're running away from. So they, they've hit some problem usually at work and they're like, they're not happy about it and they're a bit frustrated and they, they want to leave. It's always like something they can't fix. Right. So it's like, I've got this founder and he just cares about revenue and he's too short termist or as the CFO wants to sign off on everything, or I've got this boss is a bit of a pain in the butt or we've run out of cash, right? These problems, right? That they, they can't fix. They, they want to go, well, I can't get a pay rise or I can't develop my salary, but it, it's like these kinds of problems. And, uh, 
always the way the interview goes is like trying to get them to explain why they've given up and why they can't fix it. And especially in like senior product leadership roles, it's like, it's your job to fix those things and to create the environment in which people can do great work. Right. And, uh, a lot of people try to run to transferize because, uh, we solved all the problems for them, but that's not, that's not why I'm going to hire someone. Yeah, uh, sure, I need to, and especially if they're running away from stuff that we're going to have here as well. So that's really what I, I spend my time on just, trying to understand how they define their ceiling that they found for themselves and why that is their ceiling. And that's the bit I find the most useful, especially with regards to what we're looking for from that role. Yeah. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. I think it's really powerful. I mean, I guess I probably have interviewed a similar amount, but definitely over a thousand people in the last eight years. And I guess there are a couple of red flags that always emerge and, you know, high ego, um, or blaming the old company for your own problems and you're not controlling what you should be controlling uh, and and so on. But it's much, much harder. I, I think it's easier to kind of screen for downside risk, if you see what I mean, than, than for upside potential in half an hour of a call or 45 minutes. Um, but it's usually fascinating. And how has kind of the leadership team developed? What have you learned about being part of a high-performance team you know, that scene kind of the scaling from very, very small to now very large uh, organization. Gosh, Timo, like it's very rare. I, uh, I do these things and get a really difficult question after the question. <laughs> You're being very kind. That, that I've never, uh, that I've never, uh, I've actually not spent much time reflecting on. Um, wow, it's a good one. So uh, it's actually, I'm sure, a very similar story to you. So seven years ago when I joined TransWise, we didn't have a VPN. We didn't have a, have a head of HR. Wow. We didn't have a, a CFO. So when we, when we were doing budgets, uh, I remember trying to pull them together. When we were fundraising, it was like me or someone in my team pulling together spreadsheets. And like, I don't know if you've seen my spreadsheets, but I'm not a CFO or a finance director, right? So you kind of work through this thing. I, I'm, I'm curious whether you, this resonates with you where you hire people much, much more competent than you <laughs> to do things much, much yes. better than you. And, uh, I remember we hired our VPN, our CFO general counsel in my, I led the hiring actually for the VPN and, um, it suddenly felt everything got easier. <laughs> I thought, this is it. This is how it goes. You just keep going like this, hiring people, like doing yourself slowly out of a job. And then like, I don't know, there's this point that comes where you just can't keep hiring your way out of it. <laughs> I describe it the last two or three years where uh, there's very few silver bullets out there that can really help that much once you've built out the leadership team. So you kind of get the point at which you've got really competent, capable people um, like building out the company and building out the functions within the company. And then the work really gets going and it's pretty, still pretty hard. And I mean, everyone always says um, how great diversity is. And obviously, I'm, I totally agree. Cognitive diversity hugely powers businesses. But at the end of, end of the day, diversity means, you know, we have different belief systems and we have different experiences. And therefore, if we all sit on a leadership team, we probably have some kind of translation barrier at the beginning 
So how do you kind of harness the power of diversity, you know, at a leadership team level where everyone is super smart and everyone always thinks that they've been right nine out of 10 times in the past and they got the best grades at university and so on. And all of a sudden in a team where they're one out of many and they have to work as a, you know, um, system rather than as an individual lone wolf decision maker, how do you kind of tie a leadership team then together to deliver team value? So on the leadership team front, <laughs> we can come back to this, but we, we wouldn't have what I call an orthodox leadership team. Okay. So I'm not sure that, that that's that relevant in this context. I've worked on, I've been on leadership teams like in the last, last few companies I've been in. And uh, so I, I, get, I get what you mean, but I do see what you mean practically in transferwise in, um, how does product and design and engineering where you have like these are these are three good ones actually and operations like and finance and legal like when you're building the product how do they work well together as they have uh, such clearly defined and differing almost cultures right in, in terms of the in the abstract sense like if you have to go around interviewing people about this and try to piece it together you you conclude that and they feel like they're optimizing towards different goals as well. So this is definitely a challenge I can, uh, it resonates with me. That's what I, I spend a lot of my, a lot of my time, uh, thinking through, uh, how to, how to reduce the friction and create the alignment. So the kind of trite answer is like customers, right? So like the moment you get into this thing of like a design led thinking, right? or finance-led thinking, uh, or engineering-led, and it isn't customer-led, then you have these differing goals in the org that are pulling in different directions. And one of the things I've learned to do is to watch really carefully for that starting to happen. And just as an example, I'll pick on design or engineering. I think they're both two good ones. In engineering, you'll see this like little trope appear of engineers saying, you know, we're not, we're not strong technically. We're not an engineering company. We don't value X, Y, Z. And or design saying similar kinds of things. And the thing I'm like, when the first time you hear that, you think, oh shit, we're doing something really wrong. And, and we need to figure out how to fix this because we want really good engineers. And we want really Sounds good, very familiar. Yeah. We want really good designers. We want these guys to aspire to work here. And the bit that was hard was to have the confidence to say, you know what? We don't care about those things in the abstract. We actually, what is, do our customers care about those things? And if our customers do, then we should do them. And so the, the way we try to, to bridge that gap from something as abstract as that is we have this pretty concrete concept of our mission. Uh, we've had it for the last six years. We define our mission. So it's something our customers say. Our customers say the problem with money transfer is that it's expensive, it's slow, and it's hard to do. And our mission is to make price go to near zero, speed to instant, and convenience to the touch of a button. And every single quarter, uh, we track our progress towards achieving this and share it with our customers. So I talked to my design team and I described them like, you know, Archimedes said, if you give me somewhere to stand and a lever, I will move the earth, right? That lever and transferizes the mission. So if you can align, like if you care passionately about copy and you think having clear, transparent copy with XYZ guidelines matter, if you can explain how it makes payments cheaper or faster, and you can even tie numbers against that, it'll get done. 
or even qualitative insights from talking to customers as well. It'll get prioritized. But if you try to say we should do it because uh, it's a kind of a design principle, it's like you just have too many of these different um, dogmas pulling in different directions and it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Does that make sense, Timo? That makes perfect sense. Um, by the way, we call our software engineers product engineers, and partially that's the reason, because ultimately we want people to own products that add value to customers across X verticals. Um, we don't want people to be connoisseurs of good you know, code um, for the sake of having great code. Um, so the discussion really resonates um, and makes perfect sense. And I guess you know, given the complexity of operating with thousands of people across um, lots of countries, I assume people work in tribes and in squads and, you know, from an operating model, how is TransferWise uh, structured and what's good, what's bad about it? Actually, before we get onto that, as a, as a, as a great question, I just want to go back to the mission bit because uh, I'd love to, to hear your answer to this question as well. So, yes, we too have uh, product engineers as well. So one of the things I'm most proud about in TransferWise is um, every every company I've ever worked at has always had two lists of things to do. It's got a list of things to do that, that kind of make money and a list of things to do to make, that if you do them, they'll make customers happy. And every company I've ever worked at, you know, it starts when you wake up in the morning, they start with working down the list of things to do that will grow the top line. And then I don't know, maybe they've, they've read some Harvest business review article that says you need to keep your customers happy. So they'll do one or two things there right, on that list. And I think customers see that as well. So the thing I'm most proud about with TransferWise is this, we genuinely have just one list. It's, it is prioritized by what has the biggest impact on our customers. And uh, the only caveat we've learned is, you know, we have to do these things sustainably, right? So we define very carefully what our profit margins are and our cost of capital is. We know what our cost of capital is. We know where our, where our profit needs to be, which means we can't drop price to zero immediately. We drop it as fast as we drop our costs. Okay. So this works really well. And then the, this works really well actually internally and it can align everybody behind that. The, the hardest uh, constituency to align behind that is your shareholders. And um, I think because it's, it's very hard to sometimes articulate um, how doing the right thing for customers will turn into shareholder value. So that, that linkage is, is quite uh, opaque. And a really good example is price, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So if, you, if you keep dropping price, right, you can still maintain margin, but keep dropping price, like you're lowering revenue, right? <laughs> and lowering the valuation of the company in the short term. Now in the long term, it's a moat. <laughs> and in the long term, it's uh, your chance of building this massive infrastructure that's going to clear and settle all the world's money. But it's super hard to take shareholders on their journey, especially when they have different timeframes uh, around uh, thinking about you know, the valuation and exit. I'm curious, um, when I talk to CEO founders, it's one of my favorite things to ask them about. How, how do you handle this? Do you try to compromise between what shareholders are looking for and customers? Uh, yeah, how do, you, how do you manage this? So our vision has always been to be the most loved way to eat dinner. 
not necessarily the biggest one, or we have to be in five countries the fastest. We really, really, really want to be the best way. And I guess I had this aha moment when I realized that whether it's for customers, the team or shareholders is actually the same as long as you communicate it in the right way. So what we learned is, I mean, firstly, we learned uh, the relationship between NPS score and retention and referral rate. So the higher the NPS score, the higher your referral rate, and it's non-linear, so it becomes exponential. So if you can move somebody from, you know, I'm five out of 10 happy to six, the impact on referrals and retention is pretty small. But if you can move somebody from, a, from an 8.7 to a 9.2, wow, you gain so much in terms of referral and, and retention power. And then all of a sudden you can say, look, I've got one pound. Do I put this one pound into brand marketing or do I put it in my product? Because I can roughly approximate what will happen with my NPS score if I fix this and this and this product problem versus kind of increasing my brand awareness. So all of a sudden you have this translation mechanism across um, teams, how you allocate funds um, for the future. And then in terms of shareholders, look, if you lower the price point, you obviously eat into your short-term revenue. But as long as you can clearly articulate how many NPS points you gain by doing this, you know, people stop complaining about value for money. And you can then say this uh, translates to its cousin retention. Uh, and the cousin retention means people buy more boxes over time. Therefore, yes, in the short term, it's painful. But actually, over the long run, maybe after 17 months or five months or 31 months, whatever the number, we actually sell so many more boxes. So over the long time horizon, our net lifetime value goes up. And if you then take into account conversion rate uh, and so on, you, it feels like it becomes a false dichotomy, i.e., look, we create huge value for customers. And the, the faster the flywheel, the virtuous circle of high NPS score, high retention, high referral rate, driving growth in the business, the more shareholder value we create long term. And then all of a sudden, to me, it feels like everyone is fully aligned behind us. But to be honest, it's, it's probably taken three years to really educate the board and, and shareholders so that everyone gets it. Oh, wow, this is Gusto's secret sauce. The more we invest into the customer, the faster the flywheel goes and the wider the moat and no one can copy us. Now I get why we're doing this. So occasionally we still have board members saying, oh, do we really need to do this? This will cost margin or why are we not trying to sell this? But as long as I think you can objectify the conversation and say, look, let's look at the the contribution per customer over five years and really take those referral rate and retention and those uh, mechanisms into account. So you move the discussion from short-term cash contribution to long-term contribution. And then it, it feels like it becomes very, very aligned. But look, my sample size is one. I only built one company. I sit on a couple of boards where I could see how the companies struggle because they're not as obsessed with NPS as we are. So my only job is to get them to focus on NPS and establish that relationship so that they can stop having those two you know, customers and the board um, as, as uh, audiences. But it's really hard. Does that make sense? That does. That's more or less my, uh, my standard uh, NPS-driven growth speech, right? <laughs> and that's what I've tried to systemize and I talk about at product conferences. So it's very interesting for me how when I started at TransferWise, 
I remember talking to Andrew Chen, right? Uh, back before he was at A16Z, before he was at Uber, like all the smartest growth people in the world, right? Around what is the framework to build a company like this? And I couldn't find it. So back then, about eight, nine, 10 years ago, we were really still coming off the end of the marketing-led growth, especially performance marketing-led growth. I think the prior decade, you know, every vertical in Google was monetized, like you think hotels, then booking.com and flights, et cetera. So you search something on Google, someone would figure out how to monetize the traffic. And that's all that mattered was the your ability to monetize and convert, right? Um, and lots of great businesses that are kind of direct response were built that way. It's kind of like once all those verticals were gone and VCs couldn't get that return on capital, you ended up then having to fall back onto product, right? And actually, I think at that point in the kind of journey of uh, product development, it was very weak, this, what we're talking about. You are literally one of the very few founders who can say it like that. Almost every other founder and CEO I talk to talks about compromising and trading off. And there's very few people that, uh, that start from customers and argue backwards. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push you harder a little on this. Please, I love this topic. Let's go. I'm curious how you solve this next problem and share. So, so you're, you're a very analytical guy and hearing you talk through that, I can, I can hear that, that confirmed. So there's this word I use, uh, overuse called conviction. Mm -hmm. So really what I want our product managers to build is conviction on what matters for customers. And you kind of realize the data, the data doesn't build conviction, right? Uh, it kind of helps a little bit. Uh, talking to customers and seeing the qualitative difference you've made to your, their life or how much of a problem something is and how much better it could be. That's what builds conviction. Like it's a, the, the little trite phrase I use is you can't, you can't AB test your way to love, right? Mm. The product, right? That's kind of how I think about it. And uh, I see this like in very weak product managers, they don't know what to do. So they AB test everything as opposed to ones that kind of develop this intuition about what really matters. Okay. Those things and the real moonshot bets uh, that, that like, how should I put it? The, all the analytical companies with all the analytical PMs and all the people that push everything through, uh, through a business case spreadsheet, like there's a bunch of stuff that's going to get done that way. And there's a bunch of stuff that the data doesn't quite support yet, right? Because maybe the time frame is slightly longer or no one's quite executed it on just the right way to unlock it. And this stuff is much harder to build, uh, shareholder conviction on, and maybe even your own internal team conviction on. I just want to call out, like, do you find there are things that you believe you should do that you talk through? Yeah, it's very easy to explain because you have MPS and you have retention, you have this. <laughs> maybe it will show up in those metrics, but uh, is there stuff you do that's much harder to demonstrate, but you believe is still the right thing to do? And how do you, how do you get the team to think about that? How do you make sure it's not just a random ego saying, I think we should do X, but it's not grounded in anything? How do you how do you think through that stuff? Yeah, it's a really good challenge. I mean, I think you have to go back to first principles and really like think about stuff in very basic ways before you kind of create analysis paralysis. And what I mean is, is you know, do people want to have more tasty meals 
or less tasty meals? Well, of course, more tasty meals. Do they want better quality or less quality? Do they want to pay more or less? Do they want to get meals faster or you know longer um, delivered? And you kind of you very quickly figure out what kind of the north stars are, and then you can build conviction behind those. It's actually not that difficult. I think where this becomes quite blurry is um, I'll give you one example. Take healthcare. For the last, you know, 50 years, people have been popping pills and that's been considered healthcare. For the next 50 years, people are thinking about fitness, mindfulness and food. So clearly at some point in the future, Gusto will become a healthcare company, but neither you or I can predict whether Gusto will be seen as a healthcare company by 2025, 29 or 30. You know, I'm pretty sure by 2040, Gusto would be a healthcare company, maybe by 2029. But so that stuff is really difficult. So how much time and resources do you today allocate against that stuff? Because clearly you're not, you know, creating revenue in the next two, three years, but you can play such a critical role in the life of people if, you know, people have obesity or iron deficiency or mental health issues. We can literally help them through food. And I guess what helps us a lot is then to break it down to, okay, but what do we have to build anyways so that we kind of move closer to this vision without wasting too much money for too long? And in our case, it's all about what capabilities do we need and how do we leverage those capabilities? And can they then one day be monetized or used uh, to support customers in that way? So for example, personalization, customization, you know, increasing choice. Obviously, if all, all of those things that really matter to short-term revenue generation, if those capabilities can become a lot more powerful, then we will achieve that, that health kind of vision of the future, morphing into additional value for customers, which they don't ask for today. If you survey them, no one says we should be a healthcare company. So I, I, I again feel like you, you're right. It's about conviction. And to build that conviction, you have to go back to first principles and you really have to simplify it and talk to customers, listen to them. What are the, the basic truths we have? What are the trends? What can we predict with certainty about the future? You know, price, taste, quality, health is pretty easy to predict actually. And then really make sure that we relentlessly work on this. And I guess one of the challenges is, and I'm keen to get your perspective on this, but as a startup, everyone is crazy and you have this crazy idea and maybe it fails, maybe it succeeds. As a scale-up, it's a lot about identifying where you need discipline and process and optimization and where you really need entrepreneurship and craziness and, and risk-taking. And I think you then need to find mechanisms to ring-fence the risk-taking. So if you only, I'm making this up, but if you have five squads, you know, maybe you need to fight every year to have 20% more squats so that you create slack in the system so that you can really allocate and be disciplined about it. But you, in a disciplined way, allocate resources behind those conviction ideas. But as you said, it's super hard. And I think it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of listening to customers and it takes a lot of discussion. I feel like conviction can only kind of be built up if you talk to stimulating people, if you read a lot, it's not kind of sitting at your desk and building the core product. Does that make sense? Does that resonate? That's a, yeah, I, it's really cool. Uh, yes, you're, you're a very, very astute product founder. Uh, as I said before, one of, the, one of the strongest I've met. So I just play back 
Oh, there's a lot in there. So, and I know there's some stuff you want to get onto, but I'd just love to reflect on what you said first. So around your core product, you've got product pillars, right? And you list them out. It's like tasty, faster, cheaper, quality. And the cool thing with these things is uh, you can measure them. And the way you described it is we don't need to debate that making it tastier or faster or cheaper is better for customers. Okay. So you've got, you've got that thing and then you've got stuff where you've built conviction that probably is going to be important and we should invest in. So let's spend the first a couple of minutes on the first section. So when you've got these product pillars, as I call them, they sound really obvious, okay? But you and me both remember like the first three years when you had your company and it wasn't clear what yeah. they were, yeah. right? And it was, it was as ambiguous as it is now for healthcare for you. You can't list what the product pillars for healthcare are, yeah? And uh, I have the same thing. We have a same money business where it's very clear it's um, faster, cheaper, easier to use. And then we have this borderless bank account. And we could use the same pillars, but there's probably something else we're missing right in there around people's relationship with money and what they care about there. And we haven't really understood that yet. And uh, I think like part of this is being very comfortable with the ambiguity and not trying to force force the answer to emerge by just uh, for the sake of having some structure and then you strangle the strangle the product. Mm. So you have to be comfortable with that and let that emerge. So you, you kind of have these things like the stuff that you're operating now is kind of clear, it's optimization and then the, the longer term stuff. The second part of the journey, once you've got the pillars and much like you, cause it sounds like I'm guessing you had the same thing is we have people wanting to split test price. Right. Mm. <laughs> right? So, and Oh, split test making it faster, right? <laughs> or split test making it more convenient. So it's really interesting when you take apart what's actually happening there because if you're doing it, what, if the question is what are you optimizing for? Are you optimizing to make as much revenue, as much profit, growth in MNUs? It's like you're kind of missing the point that the problem Gusto is solving is making uh, quality, tasty meals faster and cheaper. And you've got so much conviction on that problem that there is this jump you make that you're going to create so much value for your customers by solving these problems really well. You don't need to test whether each of these create shareholder value. Even by, by testing that, you kind of lose some of the, um, the purity and clarity of vision of what you get to if you just take that as a given. So that uh, the two bits parts, I think, to this uh, journey is one is letting the, the pillars emerge, right? Mm. Uh, like the parameters of the product, the things you're going to try to get better and better. The second thing is in developing conviction that the KPIs here just need to go one way, right? And we don't need to try to understand the marginal return on them. Mm. Both these two things are, I think, part of the journey of product development. Um, so that was one of my first reflections on what you said. And uh, on the healthcare stuff, we have similar things with new products. For us, it kind of emerges from questions like so we're one of the few global fintechs and we're global by default when we were launched we were global because we had to be in two countries so most com most com companies start off in one country we start off in two our north star is cross-border volume and every quarter we make it faster cheaper easier to use we get more cross-border volume along the way we kind of realized you know what customers aren't using us because they can't store a balance so we give them a balance. Then they want a cart. Uh, and that drives more cross-border volume. Then they want debits. Then they want to be able to invest that money because mm -hmm. having it stuck around there doesn't do anything. 
and uh, suddenly it gets very confusing because it looks like you're building a bank, right? And the the it's not it's a, it's a massive debate uh, to get into, but the the really interesting question for me is when you look at all these neo banks, say Monzo in the UK, Chime in the US, like I think they're all doing really good jobs, and they're all going to take decent market share. And really, we're focused with our borderless account on this, you know, international group that touches more than one currency. We should be the world's best bank account for anyone that touches more than one currency. That's our, our vision there. But we'll end up building a pretty good domestic account. And the thing I have no idea is where does being global give us leverage? So do we get economies of scale and where? So I'll give you one example. I think we're one of the only companies in the world with a single onboarding flow with the same code that executes for you to get a bank account in Brazil, Singapore, or the UK. So that, that's pretty awesome. I'm not sure it makes that much of a difference to those customers' lives right now. <laughs> right? And that's what I mean by we're building these, a bunch of assets in approaching this by a global default way. But, uh, much like you, like, so we've got these capabilities that are building up. There's definitely problems customers have in this space. I'm not sure if we're able yet to solve them materially better than any of the other players in the space. And that's, that's kind of how I, I think about this kind of emergent, emergent strategy. Yeah. I mean, well, it's a great point. I mean, one of my suspicions is that the, the more you learn, the bigger you get, the more you will understand your adjacencies you know, like it's not like Jeff Bezos woke up one day thinking he should build AWS. He kind of built the core product and then at some point realized, oh, there's a byproduct, you know, let's call it AWS and other people actually want to pay for it. So I, I have a lot of conviction that as we scale the business, as we deliver for customers, as we gain economies for scale and as we build the platform, it will become really apparent where the opportunity lies and I'm firmly kind of believing that there will be adjacencies, you know, so for example, in our case, you know, we're building those like hugely amazing kind of data driven menus. So we have magician chefs who design recipes and then we have data science products that build menus, taking into account a lot of um, considerations, obviously taste and cost and so on, but much more complicated stuff like weather trends or, you know, indirect things, complaints on ingredients, likelihood of this ingredient to be out of season at this and this point and so on. So it's quite complex. And the more, the bigger we get, the more we see how much customer satisfaction we can drive through that. And the more you think about it, you realize, oh, wow, you know, there are restaurants, there are millions of restaurants in the world who have like no data science and they could use that product. And all of a sudden there's a multi, probably like a trillion pound market, which we could service, but that takes us pretty, pretty far away from the mission. So it's a great adjacency, but it's not really on, on the mission but I could probably name 10 more and some of them will be closer to our mission. And I guess if you can find that Venn diagram, that the overlap of what's on the mission and what's an adjacency and adjacency, I would then define in terms of or assess in terms of platform capabilities, uh, economies of scale and other factors, then all of a sudden you probably stumble across some really, really interesting things. So I've got high conviction that, you know, if we just, 
continue doing what we do, we will see those with huge clarity in three to four years, but not today. Even if we worked hard on them today, it's still quite difficult to understand. Just on your point on adjacencies and then... Uh we should get back to your discipline process and tribe question. <laughs> I probably have something to learn from you on that one. This is really interesting. So we, we obviously have the same thing. I have a, a bunch of a smart people uh, on our board who say, you know, you should make everything uh, a primitive and expose every part of the transwise product up. And the, the rationale is it will drive greater. It will always drive greater leverage on cost. If you're servicing more customers, right? That way. Mm -hmm. The challenge is the constraint. So our constraint isn't cash, so we're profitable. We have like, and we, we seem to have more money on the balance sheet every month, so we're, we can't spend it. Okay. Nice problem to have, yeah. So, uh, but that, that's very deliberate. So, you know, through being disciplined on marketing and engineering. And so really the constraint is the rate at which we can hire and onboard engineers. So mm -hmm. we're doing that as fast as we can. And that's back to what I talked about. It's the rate at which you can grow leadership and, and grow the team. And obviously then there's product managers you need to hire and designers, et cetera to really keep moving the product so the problem with the adjacency thing is the you only have actually a finite number of engineers you can hire on board and there's this return you'll get on putting them into the mission and there's the opportunity cost of taking them and putting them into the adjacency that's the thing that keeps me up at night worrying about it more than, more than anything else and i haven't found a way i haven't found a way through that one yet so so just briefly on this one the one thing i learned is when we were a small company i just openly shared those thoughts and i brainstormed and today what i really realize is like gusto is a pretty big company we we've got close to a thousand people um, we're hiring another thousand people in the next 18 months. And the big challenge is, is like, if I just casually share this stuff, then next month I will see people present stuff to me, send me long emails saying, look, we, we started working on this. And I'm like, no, 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 this is just, you know, a thought at this point. And so I do think the one big learning for me has been to be very disciplined. It's all about focus and protecting the team from too much distraction. And even though I know they would love to discuss this at every opportunity, it's sometimes better to give people autonomy and freedom and focus so that they can achieve what they you know, dare to achieve um, so that customers get the value they deserve. Otherwise, you can really slow down everything so much. So I'm becoming a lot more uh, reflective in with whom I discuss this and at what point to share, but it's a big, big, big lesson, you know, coming. It's cool. You feel, you feel comfortable enough sharing it on this podcast. Let's see, let's see <laughs> yeah, only, now. you know, only with you, Nilan, as a friend. Um, <laughs> and there are thousands of people listening in, I'm sure at some point <laughs> in the future. <laughs> All good. That's clear. Uh, so just getting back. Thanks for sharing that. That's really interesting. And yes. Uh, so let's get on to your question that you've asked a few times and I've, uh, I, I've dodged, uh, I've dodged <laughs> it cause I don't, I don't have a great answer. And this is the one around, uh, uh, how do we maintain discipline? What's the process we have around resource allocation? Uh, how are we organized at scale? So I'll just take you through the, the evolution of our org design. Yeah, uh, actually, let me do it this way. So when I joined Transwise, we had, uh, we had two teams. <laughs> One team's uh, objective was called uh, Team Grow Quickly. <laughs> and the second team's job was uh, Don't Screw Up. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> So we had a growth team and we had an operations team and they had KPIs around those things. And then over time, the first big innovation was moving to what I call KPI driven teams. 
So we got to writing down this mission. Well, maybe we even, even then hadn't got clear in our head what our mission was, but we were clear the things we needed to get better every quarter and the problems we needed to solve. And, and then there were about seven. And I still think these seven problems are still there in, in the money transfer business, which is we need to be licensed in every market. We need to be able to verify customers. They are who they say they are. We need to be able to onboard customers. We need the payments need to be faster and cheaper every quarter. We had teams around emotions as well. So how do we, how do we reduce worry through the transfer process? And how do, we, how do we generate evangelism? Why would a customer want to talk about it and share it? You can imagine like these teams kind of half existed, uh, existed but weren't really had that level of clarity. So we, we moved to these KPI-driven teams around these customer problems. And we, we empowered them. They were autonomous teams. So every quarter, the teams would stand up and say, this is our, well, they, over a longer time period, they defined this is our mission. They defined their KPIs and every quarter, they'd share a plan on how they plan on moving that. Uh, there was obviously a lot of uh, top down, how that manifested was generally Christo or me in those days. Uh, so we could run monthly reviews with them on progress and support and challenge. Never tell, but support and challenge pretty hard, which I felt like telling. And, and that's how we worked. And we worked like that probably from 60 people to about 300, 400. And then a couple of things started happening, right? One of the cool cultural things we had was quarterly planning. And uh, every quarter, the whole company would come together. The teams would talk through their plans. Everyone would feedback. Works great when you've got seven teams. When you've got 30 teams, you kind of find that wow. every team yeah. every team had four minutes. <laughs> you, just, you just stop scaling, right? So you're like, oh, you need to do something differently. And the, what I call the legibility of the organization became very hard for anyone to understand it, internally and externally. And that's when we moved to tribes. And when I look at the tribes, they're really around those top level problems again. We have a regional expansion tribe. We have a customer journey onboarding tribe. We have a financial crime tribe. Uh, we have a business tribe. And um, we have a support tribe as well. And um, how many are there total? Depending on how you count, you could, we've got a platform tribe as well and some other, other smallish ones, about six or seven, right? Uh, some of these are huge. Some of them have got like a 120 engineers in them. Uh, some of them much, much smaller with just two, two or three engineering teams. How many engineers do you have in total, just to understand roughly? Uh, about, I think about 400 engineers, wow, I want to okay. say. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty big. So there's a couple of things that happen with tribes. The tribes have very strong leadership. So we have a, some really incredible leaders in, in the company now. Um, our product leads, who are the leaders of what the product, you know, there's about 10 to 15 PMs in, in some of these tribes. Our engineering leads. Oh, they're really directors of engineering or VPs of engineering. They'd be calling any other company who would look up to those engineers. Our design leads and our analyst leads. Right? So much like any any uh, Silicon Valley company, we have a matrix structure with like uh, uh, reporting lines going up to these guys and teams working in cross-functional teams. Now, the cool thing that happens is we're able to set a little bit of a high-level strategy than just uh, quite fragmented Uh, a strategy driven by, uh, by the teams. So two examples, the customer journey tribe has, has set its goal as building, building the world's best multi-currency account. 
So not really focusing on some money improvements and transferring money improvements, but that's where the big goal is. And it's got KPIs around balances, et cetera. Our business team set itself the goal of, of getting multi-user access out, which is a massive, you know, cross-functional team effort to really build permissions and roles, but that would really lift all the different types of business customers that I talked through earlier up. And what that means is you've got, as opposed to a team which has leverage over, say, 10 engineers, you suddenly have these product leaders who have leverage over 100 engineers that could have drive pretty big material step changes for our customers. So that, that's pretty awesome to see. Uh, that's one, one big change we've made. And what I began to develop is a leadership team amongst those product leaders and those product leaders and dev leads to set the longer term strategy for the company, our bigger bets and our resource allocation. In terms of your other question, so that answers part of it. Your other question around uh, discipline and process, it's really hard for me to explain because, uh, sorry, answer because within any team, they have a mixture of, I don't have a top-down allocation of moonshot to business as usual. Within any team, they're managing that portfolio. Um, so, Let's talk about the business tribe or um, or even one of my marketing teams. They need to keep generating enough growth to pay back. So if we don't keep growing volume and we keep hiring people, prices go up. <laughs> so one of the constraints we have on the team is we can't grow headcount faster than volume. Okay. I mean, we can, but it means it's a price rise, which isn't great for our customers. You really need to be very thoughtful before you do that. So you kind of need to have enough in the tank in the short to medium term to keep driving the top line to generate and open up enough margin to drive investments. And that's the meant for the longer term. And that's the mental model by which I'm, I'm running with and my, my leads are running with. And that kind of works. Obviously I can find margin and capital and allocate it centrally if people have got stuff that we really should be doing. Like there's a integration into a payment system that needs a few million as collateral. We can, we can do this and find this, or there's an acquisition we want to do in a market that uh, the team can't fund, but we will fund that from our central capital and charge the cost of capital back to the team. And that will make it through to those customers prices as well. That's kind of how we've set it up. So the team can focus on optimization if they want to and making the product more efficient and generating more cash, or they can focus on top line growth. And there isn't a centralized resource allocation or strategy that can answer that from what's happening in Brazil with our license there to what's happening in Singapore to what we're doing with TransferWise for banks. I mean, this is amazing to understand. And I think I can learn a lot from you because we today have roughly 200 um, people in technology and it's at least doubling in the next, uh, you know, two-ish years. So going to a similar size of TransferWise. And we today have four tribes and roughly 80, 90% of the tech team are deployed directly into the tribes. And some of the tribes are getting really, really big. Um, the first one is getting close to 100 people next year. So corporate governance becomes a little bit more challenging and it sounds very similar. I mean, they are, you know, around certain domains and they have certain metrics and they have mission statements. The one thing we have done, which so far works really well, but I'm keen to get your perspective on whether you think it scales is we have uh, operating boards. So, you know, we have 
uh, four tribes. And then we have kind of what we call trading, which kind of does mediation across um, the tribes. And then, so every week I, I have like one internal board meeting where I hear, for example, from the supply tribe, what they're doing in terms of operational capacity and so on. And I just get an update and they normally have three, four questions we want to discuss. And it's an amazing way for me to get proximity to every single tribe we still have. And the trading tribe, the name isn't great, but that tribe then kind of makes sure that the tribes are speaking to each other and their dependencies we highlight and we surface them. Um, and we're kind of aware, you know, if this tribe says uh, we'll deliver X, uh, but we rely on this other tribe that this is actually happening and there's a process in place. And so far this works amazing. I love like how close I still am to understanding what the tribes are doing. At what stage do you think that that system kind of breaks or what are the challenges you could see? So the question is rather why we never did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good one. Uh, so that's a, that's a, that's a slightly different question. So I would... I'd love that. And um, I think Matt, our CFO, would love that as well. <laughs> and I just need to think through why, what is the problem that's solving? So like, so you talked it through, like it kept you up to date, right? But I'm, I'm guessing it also acted as a clearinghouse for issues that were blocked across tribe in some ways, practically. Yes, and completely, people, completely. And people would escalate issues there. Yeah. And I guess the way we work is... Uh, like that, that's very inefficient, right? Is the way we think about it. So like, it's fine to have that as a clearinghouse. The objective has to be to retro on why it's gone all the way there and why the, the teams couldn't figure it out across tribe together and to figure out what is a systematic change to make sure it never goes back there again. That's kind of like how I think about it. Now, I'm, I'm actually thinking of instituting a softer touch way of this. So more a way for, for teams, some teams I've noticed is, um, are feeling under, so it's the teams without engineers in them that still need to get stuff done. Right? Uh, that need to influence in some way what gets done and they, they're not getting, for whatever reason, it's, it's not happening. The softest touch way of doing it is just to get the leads from those teams to read out is what I'm going to experiment with the stuff they're frustrated with right? to these tribe leads, right? And then to try to work through these and flush it out down back to the team and to put this in as a kind of more uh, a safety valve to make sure that these things are working through. Otherwise, what happens is these things fester and blow up if they don't have an outlet. So my challenge is if you create the outlet, like something that looks like a, a board, then people will escalate everything there to make a decision and that's inefficient. And if you don't have that outlet, then things will fester and blow up in other, in other ways, right? Uh, and that's not healthy either. So you need to, uh, so I'm trying to experiment with trying to find some kind of middle ground between the two. Yeah, it's, a, it's very um, perceptive. And, and so far, I mean, the benefits by far outweigh kind of the negatives. And also, I think increasingly, this shouldn't be for decision making, it should be for coaching, it should be for staying aligned, understanding kind of what different parts of the business think about what's on Timo's minds, what's on the tribe leads mind, and so on. What I learned is if you don't have those mechanisms, you probably have 50 emails in your inbox, and you really want to avoid that you want to give people space. Because otherwise, it just doesn't doesn't scale. Look, I feel like I've taken up so much of your time. Just tell me on a personal level, what energizes you and you work incredibly hard and you think really, really deeply. How do you kind of keep your energy 
up and how do you, you know, still keep on growing on a personal level? So like you work is all consuming and I'm incredibly lucky to get to work on problems that we find uh, challenging and rewarding. That's, that's amazing. Like, uh, that's not been true my entire life. And it's great to be in a space where I, where I get to do that. And then, then there's this question of balance, right? It's cause if, if that's all there is in life, then, uh, it's super dangerous. And so the, my easiest life hack is, uh, having children yeah, <laughs> because, yeah. uh, they're, they're even more demanding than work <laughs> and you can't ignore them. And if you do, you won't have children. <laughs> and so, it's like, uh, it's simple prioritize. It's like very, very easy to prioritize this. And it's very easy to make sure you put time into this. Cause it's like obviously hugely rewarding and you have to be there. Like my kids only have one dad. I have to be there. For them. Uh, and that's the number one thing beyond that. I much like you, I'm self-aware enough to know that you can't work every hour. I, I've, um, I run now religiously every morning. Uh, I do uh, exercise and a little bit of yoga as well every day. And just it's all about those hours that you work, you're able to, I'm sure you monitor your efficiency and your effectiveness and you, you know, like if you're balanced, you're way more, right? Than if you're just, uh, if you're working too hard. Um, and a lot of this is just about trying to constrain your working hours down and your capacity to work down by filling up stuff around it that you're not prepared to compromise on. And that also is a cool thing because it forces you to find more leverage in your team than you would otherwise and gets you out of doing all the things you would, you would do yourself. Um, so those are my, those are my life hacks around that. Nice. Love those. Um, Neilan, thank you so much for joining and for spending so much time. I massively enjoyed the discussion and I feel like we could spend the next four hours and we would still only focus on the tip of the iceberg. I'm so massively appreciated. Thank you for your time and generosity. No worries, Timo. I really loved it. Uh, great chatting again. <laughs> <laughs>